information you can trust, stories you can relate to, and tips and tactics you can apply on your next adventure. Hunting, fishing, camping, and everything in between. This is the Battle Mountain Podcast. In this episode, I have Christy Titus on the podcast. We discuss one of her sheep hunts, hunting the Northwest Territories, permitting for public lands, insurance, mules over horses, and a bunch more. This was recorded over Skype, and I have crappy internet, so please excuse the occasional skipping and things like that. I hope you enjoy the show. Um, I was watching some of uh, some of your shows on YouTube, and uh, I really enjoy them. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Oh, yeah, of course. I just uh, – I was watching them, some of them just yesterday. I was uh, researching Utah. I'm about to apply there, especially since the deadline's in two days. Um, so uh-huh. – uh, and I was watching – I watched your uh, – your mule deer hunt and your sheep hunt so far. And uh, that sheep hunt looked super exciting. (laughs) Yeah, that was pretty, that was pretty exceptional for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I bet they, they look so intense. Uh, You know, I've never gone on any type of sheep hunt, so I don't really know much about them, but man, it looks like you just have to go so far to, to find a, you know, a legal ram or whatever. seems It seems like a lot. <laughs> well, we got on a legal ram the first day, but he was broomed. And had I have been um, physically in a different condition, um, we would have probably taken that ram. But um, Glenn, you know, his family's had that. They're the oldest outfitter in, in Northwest Territories. And he's like, you know, Christy, we can, you know, this is the first day of the hunt. We have nine days. And he's like, I'm confident we can find you, uh, you know, kind of that more traditional, perfect land, lamb-tipped ram. And w- when we flew over on the helicopter, we saw a band of rams. Um, and so we'd hoped that there would be a bigger one in it. And when we got to them on foot, there wasn't. And so then I was panicking, like, should we go back for this other ram? We possibly made a big mistake because some of those bands are um, pretty far between um, as far as miles wise, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. And uh, I was very worried because we, we had looked at um, three, four, five, uh, like 15 rams and none of them except that one were of legal status for that, you know, what they like to take. I mean, legal, they would have been legal, but they just weren't old enough for necessarily what they wanted to take. So <laughs> it was pretty stressful for me for a little while. <laughs> Man, <laughs> so I can imagine that, especially, especially on a, on a hunt like that, you know, it's not, it's not as though you can, go back home for the weekend and then turn around and go back you know it's 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 over when it's over (laughs) well and when you pass on a legal ram you may not find another ram and not only that but you may not find that ram that you passed on in the first place if you chose to go back for it you know i mean (laughs) they're wildlife and they move very uncannily through that terrain and so yeah yeah, no kidding. So was that uh was that one of your favorite hunts for this past year? Well, I sheep hunting is 
sheep hunting is my favorite, one of my favorite things to do just because of the physical difficulty of it. And I really like hunting in places that are super remote and there's basically, you know, it's considered virgin ground where no one's ever been there before. So where I harvested my ram, sure, you know, they've flown over the area with a helicopter, but nobody had actually been out and stepped foot there. And so, um, that is very unique because there's not very many places in the world that you can go with an outfitter and say, no one has been in this drainage on foot. Uh, no human has ever walked here that we know of. Um, and like I said, Stan and Helen are the longest standing outfitters in Northwest Territories. And um, if they haven't had anybody in a valley, 99% sure <laughs> nobody else has been there either. So it's pretty exceptional. Um, for people that like to be in that type of ground that is absolutely pure, untouched, and wild. Yeah, that's that's no kidding. That, and and I guess you know the you know Alaska and all that kind of stuff. If you're going to be able to get to a spot that no other human has been. Um, definitely sounds like your best chance up there. I've, my wife is actually from Alaska and I still have yet to even go there. <laughs> I really need to get there. <laughs> well, there's a lot of, you know, DIY hunting opportunity for folks that are willing to put in the homework and the time. Yeah. And that's, that is, uh, that's something that I, I don't know that it really surprises me about Alaska. Cause I mean, there's, as you know, there's so much DIY opportunity, especially right now at our fingertips that a person literally couldn't do all of them in a season. You know, it's, it's just not possible, but I don't know. It's just, it seems, it's not as though you're, you're researching something like South Dakota, you know, it seems like so much, so much bigger, so much. It's a daunting, it feels daunting. Yeah. And so much more vastful, you know, it's just, not only does it seem more daunting, it, it's like almost like it's an untouchable place that that you're yes. the only way you can go there is with a guide, you know. But obviously, you, you don't. Well, I was in Northwest Territories, so the Rams I was hunting are you can't go without an outfitter because uh, yeah. it's Canada. But there is doll sheep hunting in Alaska. I just wasn't. I was in NWT, but um, you know, if you wanted to pursue Alaska, that's always an option as well. So yeah. 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 That's, uh, I've been, uh, starting to do some research on a uh, float moose hunt there as, as well as mm -hmm. caribou type stuff. Um, I don't know, moose, I, I would prefer to shoot a grizzly bear with my bow, but I don't, I don't really want to pay a guide. <laughs> grizzly bears. Um, yeah, they're, I, I mean, I like hunting grizzly bears and, and that's becoming quickly one of those species that someday it's going to be a little bit like a polar bear I feel like where it's so protected that it's very difficult and not for the traditional hunter to even be able to actualize with, with the way legislation's going so yeah and I don't you know I, I once again I've never been there but when I when I talk to people when I watch the videos and everything like that it seems like there are grizzly bears everywhere uh, so there, well, and I believe there's no shortage of them. But the thing is, is you can't go to Alaska and hunt grizzly bears without an outfitter. I know, I know, which makes it you have, even even being hunt. a U.S. citizen, you can't do it. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, and that's that's kind of you know for me, and I would assume a lot of people. That's one of the things that holds me back from doing it because you know I don't um, I don't know roughly, but I mean Boston. ballpark. What are they? Fourteen to twenty-two thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah, and fourteen, I would say, would be on the low side. Yeah, um, that's kind of what I thought. You're going to be hard pressed to find one for fourteen anymore. Yeah. A few years ago, I think you could, but um, I think it's become increasingly difficult to to find yeah. an opportunity at that. Yeah, isn't that the truth? <laughs> So well, even caribou, like mountain caribou. I I hunted caribou in 2017 as an add-on species with North River Outfitting, and I had a tremendous experience. And I got a caribou bull, and then I was a little quick on the trigger, if you will, because I was hunting moose, and we we got into an opportunity where I had a chance to harvest a caribou, and I did. And then I ended up seeing a larger caribou, so I was like, <laughs> okay, well. I kind of jumped the gun on that, but you know, that's hunting. But um, now, you know, places like Northwest Territories in, in the past, if you went with an outfitter up there, caribou in the past historically has been around that $10,000 mark and caribou this year went up uh, to $13,000. So caribou is on the rise as far as expense as well. And um, so, you know, it's not getting any less expensive to venture north. And so for me, you know, getting some of these species um, and having that experience uh, to be on the mountain with them is very important to me. I've, I've harvested two mountain goats now and, uh, That's and so um, awesome. I, I'm looking at next year doing some Asian hunting because it is a little more affordable to hunt mountain species um, I'm hunting mountain caribou again this year, um, so I'll have hopefully, with the Lord's blessing, two caribou mountain caribou, and and then I'm going to start looking at countries like Asia where I can mountain hunt and have that experience without, you know, a fifteen thousand dollar price tag or better. <laughs> yeah, isn't that the truth? It's the the hunts like that they're becoming more and more once in a lifetime you know and mm -hmm. not that not that a lot of hunts I, I it's just i guess all your view you know i mean i think every hunt you go on should be an excellent experience and you should soak it all in yeah but purely due to the cost of those things man i mean geez it's you know especially especially for uh you know an average average joe person the likelihood of being able to go once let alone more than once for you know exactly. like a you know twenty four to thirty four thousand dollar moose hunt for instance like my gosh some of the it's just unreal <laughs> like, well there's still moose house. hunting there's still moose <laughs> hunting in that fifteen thousand dollar price range I mean you can still find moose that aren't especially if you have can't if you can get on a cancellation list and stuff but uh, yeah. moose are becoming very expensive too but you know the thing is is I try to do one large destination <laughs> trip a year that I save for and and I kind of plan for and then the rest of the year I do a lot of public land hunting yep. um, so that from a production standpoint I can allocate some resources to that larger destination trip um, that's more of like a aspirational hunt for me uh -huh. and then I hunt you know with my dad or solo um, on public land quite often which obviously is uh, more affordable for for me to do but with that being said because I do produce a television show um, there is permitting that is required when you film um, that I have to go through so it does 
uh, increase the threshold of cost for me rather right. significantly between between not only the daily fees for the permits, but the insurance that's required to carry. So um, public land hunts truly are not free. Uh, sometimes it's just almost more affordable for me to go outfitted and hunt private land for specific species because it, it's, it's a cost wash. Yeah. Yeah. And now I have, I have a whole slew of questions and, and honestly, that that's why I didn't really, um, I don't know, send you an email or anything like that about topics because I was just kind of curious about, you know, your, how your season was last year, how your TV shows going and kind of the journey of the TV show. Um, and so, so far this, this, conversation is going you know kind of in the direction i was hoping it would go because wonderful yeah yeah and i don't i don't you know me chrissy i don't really like scripted talks i think they are boring and i'm not i'm just never good at the game 20 questions so well, and for me i just i'll talk about anything it doesn't matter <laughs> you yeah. come open for well i i would love for you to kind of explain a little bit about uh the permitting and the insurance and things like that that you're required to have to hunt on public land because i don't know that you know me me being a videographer i've you know i've seen that side of it and i know as much as i need to know i guess to be the freelance videographer at the moment you know but i don't know that a lot of public realized that it cost you money to go over there and somebody over your shoulder press record even though you're on public land so kind of explain that's correct and, and that. with the, the exception the exception to that um if you're joe hunter and you're out and you're filming your daughter and you're recording it and you're putting it on youtube that's perfectly fine. You can do that all you want. However, when you get into a position where you're receiving sponsorship and endorsement, um, that puts you into the category that the U.S. government deems you as now a for commercial purpose. And with that being said, um, for example, like right now I'm going through a film permit process. I drew my father and I drew spring black bear tags and we have our date set to hunt in Oregon for black bear. And I have to work with the, with the forest agency to acquire permission to film. Um, and I have to go through a proposal and um, that process is somewhat lengthy. It sounds like I'm planning too far in advance. I mean, it's only March. However, the process is bureaucratic and it requires um, some timing. And, and it's especially sensitive uh, when you're filming fall hunts and you're approaching these agencies during fire season where staffing sometimes is limited. And so if you contact them a week before your trip, you're probably not going to have your legal permits in time. So I try to figure out my production schedule. And as soon as I have my draw information, I work on permitting immediately. Um, and, and, and you go through a, a proposal process. Um, one thing that folks should know, I hunt the boundaries between national forest, BLM, and wilderness extensively. You're not allowed to film in wilderness. So I have to be very cognizant and aware of what, forest agency uh, that I'm identifying in or that I'm hunting in is whether it be you know BLM national forest or uh, wilderness you you can't ever film for video production for any sort of commercial purpose whether you're taking a photo uh, for sale or filming a video that you're gonna in the end get 
sponsorships from that video without um, going through this process. So, uh, well, you can, I guess, but if you get caught, there's penalties attached. Um, obviously, you know, I want to follow the rules of wildlife as well as government. Um, so I go through a process. It's a commercial filming. They want to know the dates that you're filming. They want to know where you're going to be, um, where you're going to camp, how many people are going to be in your party, because the pricing varies depending on the people in your party. Uh, they want to know if you're doing movies, TV episodes, um, what type of animals you're using. So, for example, like when we go to Hell's Canyon for this bear trip, uh, I had a permit last year, so I'm familiar with the the people in the agencies, but they want to know how many mules we're going to have, what type of weapons we're going to be using. Um, we have to get a special permit and approval for drone use. Um, some forest agencies will not allow you to fly drones. Um, even with a, my, my videographer producer is a licensed pilot. Even with that, a lot of times they won't allow it. Um, they want to know a parking plan, a staging plan, um, and so you go through the application. Um, if you have one to 10 people, the average rate is $150 a day. Um, if you have 11 or more people, it goes, you know, $200 a day. And then from there on up, that's not really for me, the main expense. So you pay your daily fees once you get approved um, for your filming plan and you pay for how many days you actually plan on filming. So if you're going to be hunting 15 days of archery season, you have to have 15 days of permit. Um, so I try to plan my trips to where I'm only hunting five physical days with a camera. Um, and I don't permit or film scouting days um, just because it just ends up being very expensive. Um, but the, the main expense honestly is the insurance because you have to list the forest service and that specific forest group, um, uh, region, I should say as additional insured on your insurance waiver. So sometimes they require a million dollar policy. Sometimes it's a $3 million policy. I carry a standard $3 million policy which is about $8,000 a year annually just to have the insurance policy. Damn. <laughs> like, what do they think you're going to do? Burn down the whole forest <laughs> for three million Well, um, <laughs> you know, it, you just, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're liable and responsible for our public land. And yeah. um, when you're filming commercial, they feel like that you might be perhaps, um, a higher liability and more visibility with your platform that could open them up for litigation. Huh. That's crazy. So that, I mean, that's, that's a lot of hoops to jump through to, to be producing a TV show commercially. So with, with those extra hoops, Christy, where is it, is it the love for telling the story? Is it, is it, uh, the love for just going hunting? Like what's, what's kind of the drive behind, you know, your passion, everything to be willing to jump through all those hoops so that, so that you can produce it. I like to share as many experiences on public land as, as I, as I can bring to my viewers um, because it's real and 
um, it's something that everyone can relate to. Now, it's not feasible for me, obviously, to produce my entire series on public land, given geographical restrictions in some areas. For example, Canada, you have to go with a guide outfitter. Or sometimes it's honestly just more affordable to book with an outfitter and hunt on private land with all of those additional steps that are required for filming on public land. For, for example, whitetail hunting um, in the Midwest, I never do DIY whitetail because I can book with an outfitter on hunt on private land. I don't have to have a film permit then through the government. I don't have to come up with my own means of lodging and meals. It's provided and it ends up being actually more inexpensive than it would be for me to try to assimilate that on my own, especially when it comes to like flying and trying to bring in a camp or, you know, if you have bad weather, um, you know, setting up a camp that would keep you um, perhaps, you know, warm, for example, like if you think about hunting Eastern Montana um, in November over Christmas or excuse me, Thanksgiving, it's usually very cold and the thought of staying in a wall tent is not something I'm going to do. So I have the extra <laughs> expense of not only like a film permit, but I've got hotel for myself and my cameraman and and then meals and things like that. So sometimes it's just more affordable from a production standpoint um, to hunt private land and or a lot of independent producers have gone the direction of securing leases where they can still hunt DIY and unguided, uh, but they have secured a, a land lease through a private land owner where they don't have to have the additional expensive permits. And, and oftentimes it's more inexpensive to do that because if you take, for example, you know, archery elk season, if you buy a lease, a lot of times your lease fee use is less than your permit fees would be to film lawfully on public land. Gotcha. So does that, if you're, if you've got a lease too, does that, um, does that help with your insurance costs as well since it's uh, private land? Well, well, I carry the insurance regardless. I'm required gotcha. uh, by my partnerships. And then obviously just from a business standpoint, um, any sort of corporation should have E&O insurance. I mean, that's just part of doing business and adulting. Um, but it's the requirements oftentimes are less, you know, to do that. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So have you, have you kind of always wanted to have a TV show, Christy? Or is this, uh, you know, I know you've, basically been hunting your whole life so has it you know, was it something that even when you're young you know just getting started hunting you're like someday I think I want to have a tv show or is this something that's recent you know so I never started out that way obviously um I started out just volunteering for conservation groups and you know everybody asked me oh how'd you get into tv and it's like well it just kind of happened which is honest to god um you know, I had some things that I wanted to learn and I was working with local chapters of nonprofits like GARMEF, like SCI. Um, and, and at one point I was actually president of an SCI chapter and I would organize community outreach events and educational events and, and conservation events. And me being a leader and a steward towards um, best in use practices of wildlife and wild places uh, just kind of led and opened some doors to me that allowed me the opportunity to work with the Rocky Mountain Oak Foundation in a greater capacity to serve them and their mission, you know, to improve habitat and create 
uh, stronger wildlife populations for all species. So I started hosting their show with them. I met um, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation's marketing director, and I just was vigilant in my pursuit of him. And I just kept saying, look, <laughs> you guys don't have a woman representing you in conservation uh, as a public figure. And you know, I live for elk hunting. This is what I do. I live in my entire adult life has been dedicated to conservation. Allow me to help you with that. And finally, they wore thin and invited me on an episode or two. And then it just spearheaded from there to where I ended up um, working with them as kind of a co-host with Brandon Bates for Elk, uh, elk Foundation's show Team Elk for, I believe it was six years when we were on Outdoor Channel. Um, and, and that has started to wane, obviously, because of the advent of the digital platforms. And uh, I was proposed an opportunity um, that they said, you know, there's, I, we think that there's an opportunity for you to do your own digital series and air it on Elk Network, but it would be on your own. And um, me, I ended up getting a permit and I went with my father and we hunted public land in Oregon here for elk. And I created a pilot. And I went to my industry relationships and I said, look, here's this pilot. I have this fantastic idea and I have no idea if anybody will ever watch it because I'm putting it on YouTube and I have no idea if anybody's ever going to see this, but I would like you to support me. And by reputation alone, um, my partner stepped up and, and invested in that platform. That's awesome. That's awesome. I didn't know that it was – so it's, is it just on YouTube? So YouTube, Elk Network, so it, it lands on YouTube, but Elk Network posts it on Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation's digital site. It's called Elk Network. It's elknetwork.com, so it's hosted there. Okay. And then I'm on Amazon TV. So if you have a smart television at home, you can watch my main episodes on Amazon TV. The exception to those is my tips and tactics are only homed on YouTube. Um, everything is also on Facebook and everything is also on Instagram TV. Awesome. That's cool. Yeah. I, what, what are your thoughts? Um, you know, obviously you're going all digital, so I kind of, I kind of think your, what your thoughts are, but, um, with the, with the direction that social media and everything like that is taking things, um, I feel that TV is kind of in trouble, you know, um, what, what are your kind of thoughts and insights on that? I would assume that you might closely feel the same way. That's why you're all digital, but I'm not 100% sure because I definitely don't want to speak for you. Well, I have two successful seasons of digital broadcasting under my belt, and this 2019 year will be my third season producing an exclusively digital format. Um, in my opinion, a lot of my partners that I communicate with would not invest in me or what I'm doing if I were on mainstream television. And so this is one thing that, in my opinion, is so powerful about digital. And, and if you talk to Randy Newberg, he'll tell you the same things. And Randy Newberg, I must say, was instrumental in my launch of and the success of my digital series. He's been a tremendous friend and he's an incredible ambassador. Um, but you own your brand, you own your content, you own everything. I produce what I want. I promote what I want. Um, I can um, advertise how I want. Um, if I go on a hunt and I harvest a mule deer with my bow, I can turn around, 
two days later and create a commercial for my archery partner and have it to them in less than a week. There's no network that will dictate, Christy, you can or cannot do this with your content. Christy, if you give us your content, we will promote and produce and um, elevate your content. And, and the problem for me, um, being a businesswoman, is handing over my content to any digital platform and expecting them to do my job of elevating it above others. Um, why would they show favor to me over another digital series? In my opinion, it's my job to uh, promote that, and, and I have complete and utter control of that brand. Gotcha. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense to me. Um, I, I think having control and being able to portray the, the things that you want portrayed um, and tell the story the way you want to tell it, I think it's extremely powerful. Um, you know, I've, uh, like I told you, I filmed for a few people and um, listening to some of the stuff that's allowed on national TV and what's not and things like that. It's, it's, it's interesting to me. Um, I don't know. I get, I can obviously see what, you know, that they're trying, the national television is trying to protect themselves or something along those lines. But man, there's just, to me, there's so much power in telling what, you know, what really happened. <laughs> yeah. And you know, what's great about digital in the space is there's no time requirements. I don't have to fill a 22 minute segment up with a bunch of stuff that becomes boring and drawn out. I can stick to the meat and potatoes of a hunt of a storyline and put it out there the way I want. And if that's 13 minutes and 26 seconds or six minutes and 54 seconds, it doesn't matter. Um, it, what, what we try to produce is quality, um, you know, storylining and not necessarily have to fill it to fulfill a time requirement now with that being said do you guys do you guys kind of try and shoot for a for a certain length um or do you literally take the footage that you have and make an excellent episode and what it ends up at it ends up at well it just is what it is for example like this past year i hunted utah <laughs> for uh, early season mule deer and I was on a public access, private land, but it was a public access, a, a sign-in area. And I went out there the day before season, and I scouted. And I had a friend that had uh, familiarized himself with the area. And he said, okay, um, you know, this is where the deer are. This is, you know, what's going on. And, and I took his advice to some degree of heart. And after scouting, I kind of came up with my own concept of what I wanted to do. And I tagged my deer by 7 a.m. opening morning. Woo, way to go. That's awesome. I mean, it was an absolute miracle, and I'll take it for being very lucky because I was. So how do you take and make a 22-minute episode out of a one-hour hunt? Right. <laughs> I mean, it's really right. challenging. So the, the hunt is what the hunt is. I mean, I got very fortunate. Uh, we have fantastic footage. Um, the deer were not where I had expected them to be. And I had actually went scouting in jogging leggings and a red t-shirt <laughs> expecting them to be about a half mile away. Um, and, uh, because it was so hot outside. Um, right. And they ended up being, they were bedding like 200 yards from where I had set up to, where I thought I was going to be spotting them from like a half mile away. And uh, it makes 
for some really interesting footage where people are going to be like, why is she wearing a red t-shirt scouting? Because I wasn't <laughs> planning on there being either. But it just goes to show you that sometimes the animals are not where you think they're going to be or where, you know, someone has said, look, they frequent here or here. And sometimes they just do what they want to do. And as hunters, it's our job to adapt. And so that's on that trip. That's what I did. And so half of the episode, I'm in a red t-shirt and it's horrible, <laughs> but it's just what it is. <laughs> Oh, that's so awesome. That's, uh, that's like, you know, you hear the stories of, of, uh, you know, somebody taking a dump in the woods and they turn around and there, there goes the elk by them or something, you know, it, that's, exactly. that's kind of yeah. what that reminded me of, Christy. <laughs> oh, geez. So, oh, I'm telling you, I was not expecting it at all. <laughs> well heck it made for a good hunt though it sounds like i was uh what oh, that yeah. was that was this past year in 2018 yeah and that hunt i actually submitted to the full draw film tour but we were not selected with that so um uh we'll be airing that on my digital platform here pretty soon oh that's wicked yeah i was uh i was filming a hunt in uh around august 25th in utah this year um i would assume what's it open like the 18th there for most of those general seasons yeah um, i think something like that uh, but mm -hmm. anyways yeah that that's uh that's so true you know and uh you know me being on the opposite side of it where i've been you know i've filmed for a couple shows on uh for the network uh you know if it happens quick, it's like, well, let's stay here a couple days and, and figure out what we need to do to get shots to make a show, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and that is, that is definitely a challenge, but that's the beauty of digital. I mean, you get yeah. what you need to tell the story and you move on and, um, and you don't have to spend a bunch of time trying to get shots that will fill a 22 minute segment that are fake. Yeah. You yeah. can keep it real and, and you can air the hunts. And what we try to do is really air stories. What is the story? And a lot of my hunts I go into with something in mind on my storyline. Sometimes I don't. Um, for example, my spring bear hunt, Hell's Canyon, will be a story about the need for predator management. My dad and I archery elk hunted that this past fall. And of all the elk we saw, we saw one calf. Um, that had survived and so there's definitely a need there for some predator management and so we're gonna we didn't end up with enough um to even really create an even a short episode i mean we could have i suppose but um we're gonna take that footage and we're gonna roll that into spring bear and tell a larger story of um you know, predator management that needs to be happening and, and how hunters really, you know, if you're going to hunt ungulates should consider also becoming a predator hunter to balance that predator prey um, number a little bit better than perhaps it's being done. Yeah, that's crazy being in there all that time and only seeing one calf. Man, that's nuts. With with your seasons coming up, um, you know, I obviously you mentioned that you try and go on, you know, one destination hunt a year. Um so what does kind of the rest of your planning look like? Are you do you try and go to you know, do a few hunts that you've done year after year, you know, because you kind of know the area and maybe throw in a couple new public land hunts or, you know, what, what does your planning kind of look like? 
And and how many well, every, do you try and plan? I try to do 13. Okay. Um, and every year is different, obviously. Um, so every year I do a turkey hunt um, just because it's April and it's kind of a free season to do that. Every year I do spring bear. Um, the last two years I've hunted public land in Idaho. And I actually didn't, it, it was a two year accumulation public hunt because the first year I didn't harvest a bear because I wanted to shoot a bear that was um, a mature bear, you know, at least in 200 pounds in size. And so I saw a lot of young bears and I just opted to uh, not harvest one. And so I, I, that was a two year accumulation. So I always do a spring bear. This year, my father should draw an antelope tag in Oregon, which has taken him 12 years Holy to smokes. accumulate points. I should have the tag next year. My dad has it this year. Um, last year I did a, a public land deer hunt where I accumulated six years worth of rifle deer points and I harvested a deer last year. But, um, for deer this year in Oregon, I'm going to hunt my ranch. Um, I bought 60 acres and I've got some mule deer bucks, um, that are coming in and living in the area and I adjoined some public land. And so, um, I'm hoping to draw them off of that public land onto my place where I'm, I'm putting in some kind of treating it almost like a little preserve where I'm putting in some a food plot this spring and um, some water and um it's going to be interesting I'm going to try to kind of hunt them a little whitetailish um awesome. but so I'll do that and then I'm going to do archery elk public in Oregon and then I go into the caribou and um I've got a women's camp that I'm doing an antelope hunt in Wyoming with um it's a tremendous group of women and um it's called the Wyoming Women's Antelope Camp and and I'll be working with them, and um, and then it rolls into elk, and and I return to the same whitetail area every year with the same outfitter, um, and I'll hunt Kansas and Missouri, or this year it'll just be Missouri, and then I like to hunt Montana every year. Um, just depends if I end up deer or elk hunting, or sometimes both. This year I'll be rifle elk hunting Montana, and then it'll roll into December, which I may uh, be going with Jordan Bud again and hunting Nebraska. Um, I'm pretty sure I'll do that, but not a hundred percent for that late season muzzleloader. But it's so it's every year just kind of depends. And, uh, I look at and see what I can draw, yeah, um, yeah. and, or what, you know, what is the best opportunities for me to mix in, you know, quite a bit of public land hunting. I mean, over half of my hunts this year are on public land and DIY. So that's super cool. Yeah, I could, <clears throat> There, eh, like we, like we, like I said at the beginning, there's just there's so many opportunities. Sometimes it makes your head spin, um, but it it sounds oh, like yeah. you've got a pretty laid out plan, which is awesome. Uh, is your your mountain caribou is that going to be your your destination hunt? That is correct. That's my big that's <laughs> my big case around this year. I like I said uh, before, I've harvested a mountain caribou, but I'm. I'm going to be spending some time going after an exceptional bowl. Um, I'm, awesome. I'd like to find something that is this really nice bowl and, and put some time into it. And caribou are really, really an interesting animal when they run their feet click. And I really want to experience hearing a herd of a hundred and having that click go across the tundra. Um, it's an intoxicating sound and, uh, I got to experience it to some degree on my last caribou hunt, but the herds of caribou that I hunted, you know, it was like a dozen, a dozen caribou. I want to experience that to a grandiose scale. And 
we're going to have, um, it will be a late uh, um, September, early October hunt, which will have snow. And I just think it's going to be exquisite as far as the scenery, um, snow-capped mountains and tundra. And um, I think it's just going to be a beautiful hunt. We're going to be staying in the Kafaro teepee tents and the Sawtooth. And um, I think it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds, that sounds like a blast. I've never, I've, you know, once again, never even really been around the caribou, but um, they just seem like some fascinating animals, you know, and, and mm-hmm. how quickly they move when they're simply walking, you know, <laughs> it's really hard to get him to stand still. I'll tell you that much. So, I mean, I got fortunate on my first bowl that he was standing and quiet and broadside, but a lot of times they're moving and it's a tremendous challenge to get them to stop um, right? because they're, they're a migratory animal. Yeah. They're always on the move, you know, especially, especially when you are hunting the, the, you know, the migratory migratory corridors as opposed to where they might winter or summer you know it's it's a different it's a different ball game are you uh are you rifle hunting that yes yes cool cool do you try and try and split your rifle and bow hunts kind of halfway i guess in muzzleloader i i always kind of just throw it all together honestly between rifle and muzzleloader because it growing up in wyoming there's no special muzzleloader season so i've never really looked a lot into muzzleloader because for me i would i would have to go out and shoot against the high-powered rifles so i don't know i've never really looked much into it but do you try and split it between weapons or do you prefer your bow or prefer your rifle or just kind of like it all i try to split it but it's kind of the deck of cards lays where you draw (laughs) to some degree last year i had a very archery heavy year um, which was fantastic i had tremendous success with my bow and i shoot for obsession and and that was fantastic and um, I didn't have as many rifle hunts, but I compete in long range shooting. So I'm shooting a lot of matches, um, and I'm filming those as well. So it's not like just because I'm not rifle hunting doesn't mean I'm not, uh, promoting or using my firearms and optics because those are, you know, as far as, you know, my life cycle goes in the spring, it's pretty much designated to shooting competitive rifles. So I get a a good mix, even if, even if my hunts fall a little archery heavy, but this year I'm trying to offset that a little bit. I picked up a couple rifle elk hunts. Um, so I'm trying to offset, you know, being short on, on, um, rifle hunts last year, but really ultimately it just depends on what you draw, uh, and, and where you're going to go. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, awesome. Well, awesome. So I, I would assume that you're, Uh, are you most excited? Well, I don't know. I guess you said you have your bear hunt coming up with your dad. So I don't, that seems like an extremely exciting hunt. Um, but as does the mountain caribou. Uh, so what, what, which hunt do you think you're looking forward to the most? The ones I, the hunts I love the most are the ones that we take our mules. Um, I've had mules since I was two years old and we lost a mule this past fall. And one of my dad's other mules is getting pretty old. He's 25 and we're in the process of trying to update our herd right now. My dad just bought a a new four-year-old mule and I'm putting a deposit down on a baby. And 
for me, capturing that is the essence of my childhood and it's the essence of my family. And, um, those are absolutely hands down my favorite trips. Um, you know, for my deer hunt in Oregon, I filmed this last fall rifle. My dad couldn't come and his friend is semi-retired and, and is pretty much full-time retired now, but he has mules that are the full sister to one of our mules. And he said, well, you know, Christy, just leave your mules at home and I'll come. And I just want to ride the mules around the desert for a week and just have some vacation. <sighs> That's awesome. If you, if you get a deer, I'll come pack out your deer for you. And, um, and he's just kind of a, I don't want to call him an old timer because he doesn't really remind me of that, but he's, he's an older guy. And, and so that's what we did. You know, we, we, we camped with him and, and, you know, Nick, my producer was kind of worried, like, Oh geez, is he going to be riding around the desert, spooking all the deer on the mules? And I'm like, who cares? Like, that's just, you know, it's, it's better him on a mule than somebody on a four wheeler, you know? Oh, and gosh, they're um, everywhere on those buzz everywhere. Things. It was really a tough hunt because of that. But, um, the essence of doing the hunts with my father, with Robbie, um, with our mules is true to my core. And I mean, I, it's, it's, it's a terrifying thought for me to have to do it without my dad, but I, it's a reality that someday I'll have to face. So in the meantime, it's very important for me to capture, you know, my father and I doing those trips, uh, together from a video standpoint, uh, they're absolutely priceless times. Yeah, you know, I, I have a ton of questions about the the mules and the packing and all that kind of stuff, but I just kind of want to add something to how priceless that is. That's that's honestly the whole reason I bought a good camera in the first place. You know, now much – it almost sounds like much like you with now you have a TV show that wasn't really ever your thought or your goal, and me filming and making money wasn't ever my thought or my goal either, and doing it as a business, that farthest thing. I bought the camera so that I could re, you know, I could relive the hunt and – when my, if my son wants to see it, I can show him if, you know, someday if I ever have grandkids, I can show them because just, you know, being able to relive that with them and, and watch them and their reactions and their emotions as, as they get to see, heck, you know, my, my dad, you know, if they get to see their, their great grandpa shoot an elk with a bow or whatever, you know, that, that's the whole reason I got started. So I can really relate well to that, you know, wanting to be able to have it. So someday, you know, it's it's just a reality of it someday when they're not here i can still hold on to those and, and relive them and and just you know enjoy them you know what i mean absolutely i i mean last fall i i tried to tell my dad i'm like you know dad we only have so many seasons and, and he only takes five days for archery season and i literally devote my archery season every year to my father for the past I had five or six years, uh, with the exception of the year I did my pilot, my father and I took turns hunting. Um, but I completely devote my archery season in Oregon to my dad and it's all about him. And last year, because I get to hunt, you know, all over, I'm very blessed and, and he doesn't take a lot of time. And last year I said to him, I said, you know, dad, you're getting older or mules are getting older and you need to make more time for this. And you know, this was the last weekend of archery elk season in Oregon. And 
And uh, I went on the deer hunt and I came home. And in that time, his, his mule, his saddle mule had lost probably 150 pounds and his health had declined immeasurably. And within two weeks of that, we were putting him down. And he went from being this picturesque, strong statued animal that my dad was riding um, to being dead. And uh, it was a really big wake up call for all of us. I feel like, um, you know, when you have an animal for 25 years and you, you, it's a remarkable loss of their presence. And uh, with that, I, I'm trying to get my father now to really take heed to that, that life is not limitless in time. And like this year, for example, I'm taking almost two, a little over two weeks for our spring bear tag um, because Robbie has a tag and he's pushing 70. My dad has a tag and I have a tag. I will be the last one to hunt on that trip. Um, But my goal is that we go there and we spend two weeks on the back of our mules uh, listening to birds, watching elk, uh, and just in, in enjoying some beautiful landscapes. And sometimes I'm sure it's going to be, it's not, it's not always just last year, my horse fell off a cliff in Hell's Canyon. And sometimes it can be really rough there, but, um, <laughs> hopefully yeah. this year it goes without, without difficulty. And then that's, you know, when he draws his Oregon antelope, I want to do the same thing. You know, I want to take that time and, uh, and really scout and, and spend some time in the field and then, you know, continue that into elk season here in Oregon in September. So um, I'm trying to encourage my father to really, uh, really take the time and devote it to uh, not only himself, but his animals and, and me, you know. Yeah, you know, it's obviously, you know, I don't know your dad and I, I met you for the first time in person at the Western Hunt Expo, but I I've had that conversation with my dad too, where it's like, dad, we're, you know, neither of us are going to be around forever. No. And, and it's, it's a super hard conversation to have, but he doesn't even want to, he he gets to where he doesn't even want to have the conversation. And I'm like, look, we don't have to go in depth, nothing. I just want you to know that I want to do as much as we can that we both enjoy together while we can. That's, that's all I want you to get out of this, but it's, you know, once again, I don't know how your dad is, but sometimes my dad, he doesn't even want to talk about it, bring it up, nothing. I'm just like, dad, look, <laughs> it's a, it's a reality of life, but let's, let's start figuring out how we can do it. Well, you know, once or twice or three times a year, something, you know, cause it's just, it's, it's time that you never get back and it's so precious. Yeah, but I have no issue beating around the bush with my father. I mean, I tell him, look, you're old, your mule just died. And if you're going to buy another baby, because he just bought a four-year-old, I'm like, you have to be willing to invest time into him because you can't show up in Hell's Canyon in May and expect this little juvenile mule to perform and do what you want him to do the way your last mule did. Like you have to be willing to take this time and, and again, you need to start taking the time for yourself. And I have no issue telling him, look, you're old and slowing down. You have about five good years left. You better do this because that's the only way you can talk to my father and actually have him hear you. Um, So, you know, and I'm just, I'm brutally honest though, but it's true. Like, look, let's just face the facts of reality. We want to do these things together. 
And I want nothing more than for my father someday to kill a big bull with his bow. I mean, he's got lots of raghorns, but I want him to get that royal, have that experience. And every year, uh, you know, we, we certainly try and, and he always has opportunity every year on elk. And, and, you know, so I, it's just, it's just, you have to make time for that with your family and your friends. And, and it's just, uh, it's like I said, priceless. Yep. So what's with the mules, what's, you know, what's the reason that you guys chose mules over horses or over llamas or whatever else? And how many do you typically take in your pack strings? Well, we used to have a lot of mules and our, our herd is dwindled down. My mom no longer rides because she has uh, three spinal fusions. So we don't have to have as many mules as we once had because she doesn't go. Um, so it's just my father and I. So we typically keep four. Um, we're going to have five here pretty soon just because I'm going to get the baby also. But uh, um, llamas, uh, you can pack 50 to 75 pounds on them and you can't ride them. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. mules you could pack 200 pounds on them and you can ride them or up to I should say you know I don't like to pack more than 200 pounds on them and, and in places like Hell's Canyon we really stick to about 120 pounds on them um, gotcha um, and and you can't you know you can ride them and they're they're very personable and they're they're funny they're very long living uh, the longevity of them you know typically they'll outlive a horse by 10 years um, and they're very sure-footed, um, and in that capacity, they have a strong sense of self-preservation. And there's really nothing better than a good mule. The reverse of that is there's nothing worse than a bad mule. <laughs> so uh, it just kind of depends. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, uh, I, I'm a farrier too. I'm, I mean, I do it very uh, part-time, but I have, uh, I've had a few. Um, decent mules and one that was on the edge of being bad and they're they're pretty hairy to want to get over there and grab their feet that's for sure <laughs> depends on the animal all of ours are fantastic exactly so, i mean you can't, you can't judge one by another or by another i mean they're very individual just like with a horse yep. um but when they're naughty they know they're being naughty and some <laughs> don't care and some will hurt you on with intent. Yeah. And if they want to do something, it's always with intent. So, you know, that can either be good or bad. All of our mules that we've had uh, over the last basically 25 years, we've either gotten from birth. They were either born at our house or we got as weanlings or yearlings. Um, this new mule my dad's getting is the first time in a long time that we've gotten a mule as old as he is. And he's only four. Um, but uh, it's just because the passing of our other, we don't have time to groom up another baby. So yeah. I'm kind of planning ahead right now because my dad's other mule is 25. By the time my weanling next year is of riding age, our 25-year-old will be probably fully retired and 30 years old and, and will be needing another one. So it's a process for sure to make sure that you get them and, and you can control the experiences they have. But also, obviously, just like with a dog, a disposition is built into an animal. So, you know, you want to purchase from reputable breeders and be able to handle their ears and their feet and pull their tail and feel safe around them. Otherwise, they have no place at my house. Yeah. And uh, with uh, 
and I agree 100%. You know, I've grown up around horses my whole life. I haven't, we've never owned a mule, but I've been around people that have owned them. And just like a horse, just like a cow, there's ones that have good tempers and ones that don't, you know, just that's just yeah, absolutely. How, it is. Um, how do, I, and I don't know, do they kind of compare as far as like food consumption and water consumption to a horse, in your opinion? Or, yeah, I mean, very similar. Mules deal with the heat a lot better than horses. Oh, cool. So you'll find that's why they use them in a lot of desert environments because they're a hybrid. Uh, they handle the heat. They handle the cold better. And they handle workloads much more efficiently, which is why the military used mules over horses. Um, their sensibility and, and whatnot is just a lot better. Um, as a genetic hybrid, you think think about a mutt and how genetically mutts will have less instance of hip dysplasia and medical problems versus purebred dogs that tend to have a lot more uh, genetic predispositions to problems than uh -huh. mules are kind of the same way. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah, cool. With uh, with your guys's bear hunt, where you're going for two weeks. Are you are you planning on just making one show out of that, or are you going to maybe potentially do something kind of like the uh, what is it, the born and raised guys, where they try and do a show every day? I mean, have you looked at trying to do something like that too, or is it just you want to make one show for one hunt? Well, it's going to depend. My cameraman's only going to be there for five days. So oh, um, <laughs> I'm only bringing Nick in for five days, but I will be there for almost two weeks. So the goal is that my dad and Robbie have some successful hunting and, um, you know, we'll just kind of see how it plays out. Um, that trip being two weeks for me is, is more of just, I want to go experience the mountains for two weeks and bear hunt and enjoy my family and my mule. Awesome. So, uh, it, we don't, I don't, I can't plan necessarily my larger trips like my for example my destination hunts it's really better for me to get a multiple part series out of those um gotcha. because of the expense of creating that content but you just it's difficult to forecast you know if we don't get any bears it's going to be like well we went elk hunting here and didn't get an elk and now we're bear hunting and didn't get a bear i mean it's really tough to but it, I mean, it is what it is. And, and at the end of the day, we're hunting public land and, and you tell the story yeah. as it unfolds. Yeah. Well, you, you can tell you went on one hell of a mule ride, which is going to be a blast. <laughs> oh, seriously. Yeah, I, I, I've packed horses, you know, once again, never mules, but I've packed a lot of horses and stuff. And, and everyone that's dealt with horses or mules or any animal, it's not if there's going to be a wreck, it's when. Um, but knowing, yes. knowing what to do and how to mitigate it, how to handle all that is, is part of the battle, but it's also part of the fun and part of the excitement. And then you get there and you get them to camp and, and like you say, they have their own personality. And especially if you're in, uh, as you know, you're in predator type country or something like that, it definitely makes you feel safer having them around. And then when you do shoot something, it's like, yes, <laughs> praise the Lord. <laughs> you know, it's, I don't have to pack this whole elk out on my back, which is a wonderful feeling. <laughs> exactly. Well, in certain remote areas like, like Hell's Canyon, the spoilage rate, like there's no physical way that a bow hunter could kill an elk in the bottom of Hell's Canyon and pack it out on his back and not lose the meat. I mean, there's just no way. 
it, 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 in my opinion, is irresponsible to hunt there without the use of animals because there is, you cannot tell me that on a 90 degree, you know, archery hunt that you're going to be able to get out a bull elk on your back before meat spoils out of that canyon. It's the deepest canyon in North America. And uh, it's irresponsible to plan a hunt there without, uh, without a plan of how you're going to expedite and transport your meat. Yeah, and that's I that I think like you say that's that's irresponsible. I think it goes into every hunt for sure. Um mm-hmm. you know. There's some places that are just worse than others. Yes, yes. No kidding. Uh 100% agreed. 100% There's agreed. some places that are just more remote, more difficult, and it's all conditional. You know, if you're rifle hunting and it's cold at night, no big deal. But if you're bow hunting and it's 90 degrees during the day and, I mean, you can only do so many trips in and out of there. I mean, you'd be lucky to get a full trip in and, in and out in a day. And yeah. to have an entire elk, I mean, you, it's something that people have to plan for and, and think about, um, you know, prior to entering in some of these big wilderness areas and, and extremely remote locations. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's, and too especially uh especially someone that's never done it before you know you bring up an excellent point there because you know an elk sounds big and the number that he's given you know whether it's a spike or raghorn but two to three to 350 pounds of meat yeah that sounds like a lot but you don't really realize how much that is until you're looking at the bags full of meat thinking, holy hell, how am I going to get this out of here? You know what I mean? Exactly. It's, it's a little and, different. <laughs> well, and a lot of those places aren't for novice. I mean, last year, for example, we were packing in and we got the bees were really bad last year. And uh, I was leading my horse and there was my mule tied on behind him with packs and my cameraman's horse was tied onto him. And my horse is an Arabian. He's pretty light on his feet. And my producer was walking in front of me because he just got done flying his drone. And, and I said to him, Nick, you need to go faster. We're about to have a problem. And he's like, oh, no, it's fine. And the cadence of my horse had changed. And I said, no, you need to go. We're going to have a major problem right now. And the next thing I know, my horse went down over the cliff, uh, over the mountain edge. And in Hell's Canyon, going down is typically fatal. Um, we got in, I was very fortunate if in the spot that he went down, um, that it was dirt instead of rocks, because if it had been spire rocks, the way the five feet in front of us was spire rocks and he would have, we would have had, we would have lost him. Um, but the hornets had started to sting my mule. My mule is 16'2". He's enormous. My horse is a little old. Now, hold up, hand. Christy. 16'2". Uh, um, I would assume you're meaning hands, correct? That's correct. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, so, I don't talk a lot about with horses uh, on the podcast, so um, I would love to. It just seems like not that many people do as much with people do it. Too, <laughs> you know, but they're they're like sixteen two what? So sixteen two hands and hands is a a unit of measure. Four inches. Yeah, four inches typically. for um, when you're measuring the height of a hand of a horse. Mm-hmm. So when you hear somebody goes, that horse is fifteen hands tall. Um, it's it's not literally like hand after hand. Um, <laughs> but anyways, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. So it would it would put him at sixty six inches tall to the wither with a saddle on he's my saddles above my head standing let's just yeah. he's that big 
so he's enormous and the bees were stinging him and he took his pack saddle and just kind of drove it into the bun of my horse, which was in front of him to kind of hurry him along. But in that process, my horse had two choices, either to run over the top of me and trample me or get shoved off the mountain. And he went down and um, he lost his feet and couldn't get, you know, cause he got shoved off. Uh, the other two stayed on their feet cause they, they didn't get shoved. They were able to control off the side. Um, and then my horse, when he was down, um, he, he laid there and then he kind of rolled over and tried to stand on his feet and he couldn't get to his feet. Um, cause he had packs on, which mind you, his packs were, I think he had about 120 pounds on it. They, his packs were not heavy, but in that ground, you don't, pack them heavy it's so steep um and he couldn't get to his feet and so um we untied my mule we untied the horse um and my uh horse ended up that was down rolled down the hill it was so steep it when he laid he, he slid down about 50 yards it was so steep Jeez. and in that process the um breast collar on his saddle had wrapped around his throat and Nick and I worked vigorously to get the packs off of him um, because he had he was packing feed. So we got the packs pulled off of him, and this whole time he's slowly getting choked out, like a like a W like a MMA wrestler, and right, his right. eyes are now rolling back in his head. And and I'm trying to get his breast collar off, but his his rigging is pulled so tight that it's almost impossible, which it goes to show you really need to understand your equipment and how it functions and what type of buckle systems you're running. And I was able to, um, pull his breast collar buckle loose and we undid his saddle and, um, my cameraman grabbed the saddle and luckily my horse is sensible and he wasn't flailing. He wasn't freaking out. He just laid there and I grabbed him by his four feet and which if he was flailing, he would have killed me and I right. couldn't have helped him. You know, luckily he's sensible and like literally just laid there. And I grabbed him by his four feet and I rolled him to the downhill side as Nick pulled the saddle out from underneath him and we were able to stand him up and he survived. Um, and we were fortunate that he only had a rope burn. But this is the type of stuff that happens in these places. It could have ended very differently where you know, if you have to shoot your animal in somewhere like that, you actually have to pack them out. So if he would have broke a leg, I would have then had to quarter my horse and pack him out. And so it's, it's not for everybody right. uh, doing these types of trips. You know, we got, we got very fortunate in that situation that um, none of the mules were hurt um, and we were able to get back to camp. And then he, you know, he was very shook for about 12 hours. He shook uh, pretty uncontrollably for a little while. And, and then he got it together and was fine. And, Dang. and it just goes to show also, you want to have sensible animals that in a situation like that, they have enough trust in you to allow you to help them, but then also not panic enough to where they're going to harm you, you know, because that's, if my horse would have panicked, I, he would have choked to death. Uh, cause I couldn't have helped him. Yeah, that's, uh, that's that's just a sketchy situation. I uh, I'm I'm glad. First off, you know I'm super glad that it turned out well for you guys. Um, I I had one that didn't turn out well. Uh, we were we were hunting in Wyoming and we had <clears throat> walked into a spot uh, the night prior, and 
uh, right before it was, it was right at the end of November. So really cold, lots of snow. So we walk in there and, uh, we just had cow elk tags and my wife shoots. Well, we both aimed at this cow elk because we both had tags shot. We watch it drop and uh the herd you know you've you've elk hunted they kind of scattered and then they stopped and they're all looking around and mm-hmm. there's the lead cow is broadside and i had a tag too so i put it on her and i shot and i hear this hit and she goes right over the hill so i don't i said okay well let's let's work our way over there and let's go find your elk because we know it dropped and uh we'll go look for blood for mine so we found hers finally you know slid way down the hill and everything we got it all gutted went and looked found a little bit of blood on mine said we'll come back in the morning it's probably right over this hill you know it's it's like five degrees so obviously nothing's gonna go bad you know and so i called my uncle he's like oh yeah yeah no problem at all just uh just uh oh hold it together little guy sorry i'm talking to my little boy he's uh he's nine weeks old (laughs) oh and he's he's sitting here right next to me and i when i spun around i bumped his uh his seat and he was sleeping and i thought oh. i thought he was just gonna have a meltdown <laughs> i'm a roar I'm, <laughs> yeah i'm mr mom for the next couple of days that's good yeah but anyways uh so he's like yeah no problem go get these two horses he named them you know and we went and got them the next morning and got up there just taking our time because we already had the one elk skinned out. And I figured the one wasn't too far away. And we got in there and found a good tree. And the tree was, was really big as far as bushy, but the branches were really thick. So from one side of the tree to the other was probably 10 feet. I mean, it was it was big enough that that the horses wouldn't mess with each other or whatever else, you know. And both these horses, the one was probably 17, 17 and a half hands tall, just a giant horse. Um, and since, since you know horses, a size two shoe almost didn't fit him. I mean, he was a big horse. Yeah, giant. Yeah. And uh, the other horse was uh, either his full brother or half brother and just super stocky, just not quite as tall. And so I told my wife, I said, Hannah, I'm going to go look for this cow that I shot. Um, And we tied them up probably 50 yards away from the elk, you know, long ways away so they wouldn't get worried. And uh, I said, just start working on that elk and I'm just going to go over here, follow blood for a while and then I'll come back. And I I couldn't have been, she, she helped me for about 20 minutes. She turned around and went back and, uh, I'm just going along looking for blood, following blood, following blood, following blood. After about two or three miles, I'm following blood, but just the elk is not slowing down whatsoever. And all I can think is I hit it. I hit the elk high shoulder where it didn't hit any vitals and just went through mm-hmm. that void high shoulder, you know, and, and never found the elk. Well, after about two and a half or three miles, I turn around and I see my wife waving. I was like, Oh, Hey, here I am. You know, I start working my way over there and I get over there and she's just sobbing. And I'm thinking, what is going on? You know, cause I have no clue. And, uh, she starts to tell me that she got back to the horses and the one horse was gone. The other horse was laying there strung out. And I'm just like, Oh man, <clears throat> you know, and on top of it, they're not even my horses. So we get back over there and sure enough, the one is strung out. He's dead and oh no yeah and um so i 
cut his halter because it, it was strung out, you know, and he was laying. And this is the 17 half hand horse. And oh boy, down there, yeah. And so I said, well, we we got to go find the other horse now. So finally, after probably two hours of looking, it's getting dark. We finally found this other horse, and uh, it was just it was a wreck, you know. And we still to this day we have no clue what happened because both of them were very tame horses, you know. Mm-hmm. And and being gone for fifteen twenty minutes with tame horses, I I would you know I would never second guess that. Um, so no. still to this day have no clue what happened but man it's just it's an empty feeling and especially it not being you know i'd feel bad either way but especially it not being my horse um man i tried to give my uncle cash for it and he just wouldn't take it and it was just a, it was it was just a for for such an exciting hunt that was my wife's first elk she had ever shot so it was super exciting and that that instance kind of pretty well ruined it um thank god none of us got hurt obviously but so i you know i i'm so glad that yours turned out good for everybody that was involved because you know i've and i don't know if you've ever been on the on the opposite side where it didn't turn out good but i definitely have and it's it's not fun yeah, as a kid, we lost a mule. She broke her leg uh, in the mountains, but uh, not as not so much as an adult. Uh, we've been pretty fortunate, but you know things happen fast, and uh, that's the challenge of of livestock. You know, things happen fast, and it's good to have a good relationship with the ones you do have. So when things go wrong, hopefully, um, hopefully you can have a good enough relationship. You trust each other to get through it. And in your situation. Who knows what happened? Um, but I've seen some strange things happen. But uh, yeah, it, it, that's you just can't predict wild. I mean, there are animals. You know, you can't. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, last question I kind of have, at least for this conversation, it's I I always enjoy chatting with you, Chrissy, because it's just a uh, it's just a relaxed conversation. It's like one of these times we'll just have to get like a bottle of whiskey or beer or something and just like sit around the campfire <laughs> and do the podcast. That would be fun. I don't even drink. Oh, well, never but that's mind. That's a good idea. <laughs> I don't very often. So, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, like I say, I just, I, I appreciate it. Uh, it's, it's just always fun chatting with you. Um, thank you. Yeah, no, thank you for taking the time. Um, but my last question is, is what, what type of situation out in the wilderness, whether it be with your horses or without them uh, or mules, sorry, mules or without them, or, you know, just with anyone, what type of situation just really makes your skin crawl? Um, and you're just kind kind of freaks you out. Is there a situation like that? I mean, I, there's nothing that makes my skin crawl. The only thing that really got my goat this year um, was I was hunting public land and there was a gentleman um, that had left out an old lawn chair and um, a frame for an awning for a camp, uh, like a tent canopy thing, you know, and it looked like somebody just left trash out there. And uh, we had the mules and Robbie and I were scouting and we set up our camp and we were just staying there and, uh, this guy rolls in the next day in his truck, comes in really fast, doesn't turn off his vehicle, throws it in park, and comes out and starts screaming at me 
cussing at me and he was so aggressive. I thought he was going to physically assault me. I kid you not where I yelled at him and I said, Whoa, you need to stop right there. I mean, if Robbie wasn't have been there, he came out of his trailer and Robbie's a pretty big man. Um, I would have been afraid because this guy came at me and he cussed me out and screamed me out one way sideways. He had found his girlfriend had the tag and he had found a deer apparently um, that I I was too close to. And he, uh, I, I mean, I literally thought he was going to assault me and I, and I called him on it. I said, look, man, this is public land. Number one, number two, you can't reserve a camp spot by putting out trash what looks like trash and with it being public land, you know, there's only so many places for everyone to camp. So sometimes you have to camp next to people and you work around each other. You know, we, we all are public land owners and we all have to be respectful of one another. That's just the way it is. And, um, he was not nice. I shook his hand. I looked him in the eye. I was sure to get his name. I told him my name and I said, you should Google me. Because I now know your name, Mr. So-and-so, and I'm going to Google you. And it turned out that this guy was from Oregon and was a fishing guide. And I won't say his name because I won't do that to him. He's lucky that I haven't. But is the poorest demonstration of sportsmanship that I have ever seen. He did come back. I'm assuming he went and Googled who I am and came back and apologized um, too little too late. I literally thought this man was going to assault me. Oh, um, so as far as having my skin crawl, that would be it. I, I think bad sportsmanship is not good on that same hunt. You know, I was driving a pickup truck and there was people with ATVs and I was going to a certain spot where I was going to drop in and hunt. And there was an ATV behind me and I was respectful and pulled off and let him by. Well, this gentleman on the ATV went the same spot I was getting ready to go. And so instead of dropping in on top of him, I backed out and I just basically burned my opening day because I didn't want to be disrespectful to another hunter. And Sometimes that's the way it goes. We have to be respectful of each other and and not get in fights and not um, cuss and scream and be rude. And I mean, it's just it, it's we're all have every the same rights to be in certain places. And actually, the camp I ended up going to, there was literally twenty people camped in the same area because there wasn't anywhere to camp. I mean, that's just the way it works sometimes. And even elk season this year, the people, you know, 20 camps in, you know, a quarter mile stretch, because that's just the spots where you can camp. And, um, you know, that's what gets my skin crawling worse than anything is people that are disrespectful, people that um, can't have good and demonstrate solid sportsmanship, you know, if you guys watch my, my pilot episode of my series, I was calling a bull and the bull was answering and I ended up calling in two hunters. Well, these two guys had slept overnight on the mountain hunting this bull. So my dad and I left, we didn't even go after the bull instead of being like, well, tough, tough shit. You know, we're going after it too. We backed out and said, Hey, you know, you guys have at it, you know? There's plenty of elk out there to find. Sometimes they're scarce, but I'm not ever going to do that to someone. And and I just, you know, it, it, as far as people being sportsmen and people hunting public land, we all need to be respectful and treat people as if we, you know, we would want perhaps maybe our mother to be treated <laughs> or our father to be treated and, and keep yeah. that in mind instead of feeling entitled to an opportunity and 
And uh, sometimes that requires being the bigger person. And uh, I encourage everybody to, to kind of live to that. I mean, my deer hunt was really tough. The guy that I gave, you know, that I backed away from, he ended up killing a deer opening morning. Um, and it took me seven days. <laughs> I, <laughs> and, you know, so I was really tired by the seventh day. I was like, man, <laughs> this is tough. But it, that's just the way it is. And, and we all have to be mindful of that. And, and I, that's the one thing I urge more than anything above all is just to be good sportsmen. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think you, in that in itself, you brought up a lot of good points, but I, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting when you're out there hunting and you, you see another hunter, right. And part of you is like, well, I don't know that I really want to go talk to them because I just want to do my own thing. I just want to hunt. But then part of you is like, well, maybe I should go over there and say hi and whatever, you know, and, and it seems like more often than not, when you just go over there and say hi and, uh, and let them know, hey, this is kind of, I'm going to be over that direction. Um, I'm going to do my best not to, you know, come over here and hunt where you are. Most of them, it seems like, are fairly respectful and, and they'll, they'll honor yeah. that and they'll, they'll show the same thing. I mean, you get the bad apples and it sounds like you found one. Um, but, uh, you know, like, for instance, this year. Well, I, I can tell you, especially being a personality, if someone feels like that you have wronged them they have no problem going around these trade shows and telling people what happened because yeah. I experienced it from you know I had another man from Idaho that was running around one of the expos I went to that couldn't say enough bad things about an industry person that had wronged him on the mountain and um, that's just something for everybody to be extremely mindful of as well. And, and, and I'm sure that I've rocked the boat on someone before, I mean, but not intentionally. And, yeah. and, uh, I always try to be an excellent sportsman and, and represent what public land hunting respect should look like, but, uh, just it, yeah, it can be bad. Yep. I agree. I agree. Well, Christy, I guess I will, uh, I'll stop burning up your day. Um, <laughs> I appreciate you taking an hour and a half out of your morning and yeah. hopping on the podcast. I mean, I really do. It's, uh, this one will air on my new podcast. So, uh, so yeah, so I, I do, I just appreciate it. I always enjoy chatting with you. So thank you very much. No, thank you. I appreciate you having me on.